for Advent this year, we're doing something a little different using the three weeks leading up to Christmas Eve to focus on the three gifts that the Magi, the wise men from the East, brought to Jesus. And those gifts, and we'll do them in this order, are gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Each of them tie us to Jesus in a different way. Uh, certainly gold being a gift fit for kings, incense being used in the temple by the priests, and myrrh used uh, both for medicinal purposes but also for embalming those who had died. In this way, we see pictures and previews of who Jesus is, even in the gifts that were brought to the Christ child. And so from manger to cross and all the way to the empty grave, each of these gifts teaches us something about who Jesus is. And we ought to give some credit to the remarkable insight and faithfulness of these magi who were not Israelites, who were not from Jerusalem or Judea, and yet they saw the sign and in their attentiveness knew this is something they did not want to miss. And so today we'll read the chapter 2 of Gospel of Matthew, verses 1 through 12, that covers the whole story of the magi. They don't appear for very long, and they're not ever mentioned again. And yet here they are in this holy moment that they did not want to miss, and neither should we. And so as we open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, before we do so, we will pray. Um, because part of our practice is that we do pray. We ask the Holy Spirit, who is alive and active, to be alive and active in us, that our hearts and minds might be open to what God might speak to us today. So let's pray together. Jesus, we come to you, and we come to worship, to sing some of our favorite songs, to get in the Christmas spirit, but ultimately, we come to see you. And so, as we turn our attention towards Matthew chapter 2, may you give us a vision and glimpse of insight into who you are. Whether we've been worshiping, whether here or somewhere else for years, or whether we're new to all of this, May you speak fresh to us as we think of the gold that was given to you. May we be reminded that you are our king and that your value exceeds all. And so, Lord, as we turn our attention, as we hear, as we listen, as we open our, our, our ears and our hearts to what you would have us here today, speak, O Lord, for we, your servants, listen. And we want to see you, Jesus in all of your glory and splendor. In your name we pray, amen. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, and found out from, the exact, from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. 
After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If the Magi had not visited Jesus, would we know that they were missing? Would the gospel story be incomplete in some way if the Magi from the East had never gone to Jerusalem and spoken to Herod, who was suddenly alarmed and was uh, worried about this threat that somebody else would claim to be king? And of course, we understand that the Magi knew this just wasn't any king because you don't typically worship kings. You might pay taxes to them, uh, but you don't worship them. And this was a king that they were coming to worship. If they had not done this, would we know any different? Probably not. Our nativity scenes would look a little bit different. Um, we wouldn't have those three characters, though as we pay attention, there's a lot that we've learned from tradition over the years because Matthew 2 doesn't actually tell us how many magi there were. What we do know, though, is to make this trip there would be quite a caravan of people coming from a distant and faraway land and our best understanding of how they even knew to be looking for this star and knew what it meant and knew that this was something worth committing to was probably from the days of exile when the prophets the like of Daniel were in Babylon and Assyria. And these prophecies, this hope of the Messiah was passed down for centuries leading up to one group of wise men who studied the stars and paid attention to the planets and knew all about orbits and rotations. And they see this star and they know that it is go time. They do this both in trust and in faith and in commitment. Would we know any different if they hadn't gone? No, we honestly wouldn't know any different. And yet they would have missed out on something important. We might turn to passages like Isaiah chapter 60 when we hear words like nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn, we hear that and we can easily think of magi from other nations coming to visit Jesus and see how God used their faithfulness to bring them into the story, both in the moment of Matthew 2 and also completing what was promised in Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60 continues with these words in verse 6, Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense, and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. This is exactly what the Magi have done. They have come with gold and incense and myrrh, and they have come to proclaim the praise of our Lord. You wonder, they could have not done this. This part of the story could be missing. They could have looked at the star and said, oh, that must mean something to someone somewhere and not think that it meant anything to them. Or maybe attending to that star and finding out what is, what's it all about, that could be somebody else's problem. Don't we live in a society that often sees things and think, that's somebody else's problem. That's somebody else's thing to deal with or go attend to. The, on the flip side of that, 
or continuing in that front, they could have seen the star raise up and know that that's something significant, flip through, learn that it has to do with the Messiah who would be born to be king of the Jews, and they could have said to themselves, that's a really long way. That is a very expensive journey, so we're glad to know that this Messiah is being born, but who cares that much? We're not making that trip. Can you imagine uh, basically taking an international trip to go to a baby shower? In some ways, Matthew 2 is the first baby shower in the scriptures, except it happens after the baby is already born. The child is born, and people show up with gold and frankincense and myrrh. Would you go to an international trip? Would you buy that plane ticket, which would be very expensive, to give very expensive gifts to a baby? And I, in this exact moment, see a grandmother actually rocking her grandchild. And I think, yes, absolutely, some people would, but it depends on what kid it is. It's probably not something you're going to do for your third cousin's whatever, Dutch bingo, play your heart out, that lives in, you know, the Netherlands now. You're probably not going to make that trip all the way there. And if you do, you won't feel bad about bringing a cheap gift because also you had the most travel expense incurred to get there. But that's not the mindset of the wise men. They make this journey, which would cost money. It would be expensive even just to get there from wherever exactly in the east, Babylon, Assyria, modern day, um, perhaps Iran. Um, if you read your Words of Hope updates, they always have some uh, great location identifying that they do in their updates through Advent. They could have said this is too expensive, but they went anyway. The cost of travel, of caravanning all the way there. And then the gifts that they bring to Jesus are expensive, good gifts. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. And nowhere along the way do they seem to do anything except for seek with commitment and worship with joy. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. When they knew this long journey was going to soon pay off, even though they had their return trip, but it was about to be all worth it because they were going to see Jesus. They were overjoyed. No complaints, no regrets, only celebration. And friends, it is simply true of human nature that complaining is easier than committing. Complaining is easier than committing. It is always easy to find a reason why that's not our job, why we don't have to, or why if we do have to, it's going to be something to grumble about. If the wise men can teach us something as we get into this season of Advent and all of its busyness, it's that we ought to commit wholeheartedly to that which God calls us to and avoid our complaining. The Magi make this trip and they arrive with their gifts. And starting today, we'll just focus on gold, leaving a little bit about frankincense and myrrh for weeks to come. Gold, of course, is a gift fit for kings. Bringing gold represents that they understand that this Jesus, this young child that they're coming to visit, is someone who is royal and important. Because if you're going to visit a king, you bring the best that you've got. If you have gold and you have silver, which do you bring to your king? Gold. If you bring silver to your king, uh, your king can be like, hey, you know what? Sorry. You keep the silver, I'm taking your gold. But actually, in fact, because you're trying to be stingy about it, I'll take your gold and your silver. Because that's what kings can do. When you visit the king, you bring the absolute best. 
you make the journey and you commit to it and you bring your gifts. They bring him gifts of gold because they know that he is someone important and they worship him, not just as a king. And might we get cautioned that we're giving too much credit to the Magi, yet I think we can actually give a lot of credit to the Magi for their commitment, for their gifts, that they seem to know more about what's going on than Herod does, who had to ask the question and really got kind of the softball answer that's a quote from a passage in Micah. The Magi bring him gifts of gold. Now, gold, of course, we can say, okay, that's royal, we understand it, Jesus is a king. And yet there's something else about gold that we shouldn't uh, lose our attention on, especially as we come to communion today. And that's that gold is for kings because it's the highest gift you can bring. But also gold is used a lot in the building of the tabernacle and the building of the temple. Gold is so important, so valuable, that it's really the only thing that we'll do in the places of the temple where you would expect to encounter God. Going to 1 Kings chapter 6, if you'd like to follow along with me, you can. But if we flip back to 1 Kings chapter 6, starting in verse 19, if you count up how many times gold is mentioned in this place, and this is about the making of the temple, Solomon building this grand temple to worship God and to encounter God's presence. Starting in verse 19, he prepared the inner sanctuary within the temple to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. This is where you would expect to encounter God. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 wide, 20 high. He overlaid the inside with pure gold, and he also overlaid the altar of cedar with gold. Solomon covered the inside of the temple with pure gold, and he extended gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary, which was overlaid with gold. So he overlaid the whole interior with gold. He also overlaid with gold the altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary. Altars are where you come to offer your sacrifices directly to God, and only gold will do there. Picking up in verse 23, For the inner sanctuary he made a pair of cherubim out of olive wood, each ten cubits high. At the end of the chapter, we learn that those also were covered in gold. One wing of the first cherub was five cubits long, and the other wing five cubits, ten cubits from wingtip to wingtip. The second cherub also measured ten cubits, for the two cherubim were identical in size and shape. The height of each was 10 cubits. I didn't bring my tape measure with me this morning, but let me tell you, they're big. He placed the cherubim inside the innermost room of the temple with their wings spread out, and the wing of the cherub touched one wall, while the wing of the other touched the other wall, and their wings touched each other in the middle of the room. He overlaid the cherubim with gold. On the walls around the temple, in both the inner and outer rooms, he carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He also covered the floors of both the inner and outer rooms of the temple with gold. Covered the floors with gold. Now, I'm really pleased with our nursery remodel and bathroom remodel that's almost complete over here on this side of church. But I'm really glad that those aren't gold floors, in part for the cost, and also the nursery should have a softer floor. Can you imagine, though, walking into a place where no expense could be spared because of who it was that it was for, that you would make the floors covered with gold? Walking on a golden floor. And why would Solomon go to this expense, use so much gold? Because this is worship of Almighty God. 
All that we have belongs to the Lord. And so, of course, there's no expense to be spared in the temple. Of course, you're going to cover everything with gold. And you're even going to put gold on the floors. This is an image of where we would come to worship God. Not that gold buys God's favor, but rather that no expense should be spared because of who God is. In fact, it is through, it is through our worship of God that we receive his favor to us. Gold is not only the metal fit for kings, but it is the place where you expect to encounter God. If you're going to build a holy of holies, there's going to be gold involved. And knowing that this was a common practice to bring some gold to a king, if you knew that a king and queen had given birth to a son, a new heir, you might be quick, if you had some spare gold, to go and visit them and join in the baby shower and say, hey, here's some gold for you. Except in this culture, most of the time, if you're giving a gift like that, you're expecting to get something out of it. You might go and visit the new king and queen, congratulate them on the birth of their son, and give them some gold, and with a little bit of a wink-wink, you think, you know, if your son grows up to be a mighty warrior prince and maybe conquers a little bit more territory for this kingdom, if you're thinking of someone who might be a good fit for being a regent of that kingdom, don't count me out. Here's some gold. It is very much a gift of giving to receive something. And yet, when the Magi give gold to Jesus, there's no expectation of reciprocity. They give it only as a gift of worship, as an offering, as a sacrifice. Because there's no expansion of territory for their country or their kingdom as they give these gifts to Jesus. And they're also giving them to Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, though only Mary is mentioned in Matthew chapter 2. There is no way that she can have anything to pay them back with. This is not an investment to get something back later. This is a gift no strings attached, and an expensive one at that. And yet the Magi receive everything that they need because they are overjoyed. With their gold not covering all of the walls, with their gold not on the floor, but with their gold just given to Jesus, they are overjoyed and they worship the Christ child. They worship him in spirit and in truth. And I think we can give lots of credit to them for knowing at least in their heads, and getting a bit of it in their hearts, just what was happening and the significance of who it was that they were worshiping. They give with no expectation of reciprocity, and yet they leave with great joy. And they leave, they make their journey even more expensive to go around Jerusalem to avoid going back by King Herod because they were warned in a dream not to do so. When we give, do we give the best of what we have? And do we maybe give with a little bit of expectation of reciprocity? Or are our gifts simply given out of worship and out of joy? And who is it that we give them to? Mary and Joseph, as parents, have no way to repay the Magi. The gifts might have actually been sold as money to use for their emergency trip to Egypt that happens a little bit later in the chapter. And yet, who do we give our gifts to? We might say that the Magi had it easy traveling that far in caravan because they could actually see Jesus in the flesh. And we have the Holy Spirit testifying of Christ in our hearts. But who do we get to give our gifts to? I think we actually find a good answer to that question in Matthew 25. Verse 40, the king will reply, truly whatever you did for one of the least of these, 
you did for me. And Matthew 25 continues, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. When we serve our neighbor, when we give to others, when we give the best of what we have, are we doing it for the least of these, knowing that we are then doing it for Christ? And what we do not do, we do not do for the least of these, we do not do for Christ. Last Sunday in Colossians chapter 3, we heard, whatever you do, which could be giving gifts, whatever you do, do in the name of the Lord Jesus. The Magi are doing just that. They're giving to actual Jesus. And yet, we ought to also take up their example of giving our finest gifts, full of commitment, with no complaint, with no abandon, knowing everything that we give away on earth belongs to God anyway, and knowing that whatever we did for the least of these, we did for Jesus, our own extension of the Magi's trip that we can still practice today. And maybe we might say to ourselves, I don't have as much to offer. I can't give the way they can. I don't serve the way they do. I don't have the gifts that they do. And yet, I think part of what we need to understand about the gift giving here is grounded in the Old Testament. In Leviticus, which is nobody's favorite book, um, if you do think so, you're either lying or I want to figure out exactly why. But Leviticus gives lots of explanations of sacrifices. And one of the things that is repeated throughout Leviticus and reprised a bit in Deuteronomy is that everybody has something to give, everybody has something to offer. Leviticus chapter 5 would be one example of where uh, the expectation for the sacrifice is a lamb. If you don't have a really good lamb, if you can't afford one, then you can give a goat. If you don't have a goat, you can give a couple of doves. If you can't afford those, you can give a couple of pigeons. You ever been to Chicago or New York? Everybody can find pigeons to give at the offering. And if you don't even have time to catch a couple of pigeons for the priests to offer as a sacrifice, you can give a tenth of an ephah of flour, and even at that, don't put any incense in it, because that would make it smell nicer. We'll get to frankincense next week. But that would also make it more expensive. It's just throwing a little bit of flour into the offering. There is always an exception of, if you can't give this, then that, then that, then that. Now, in the case of the Magi, they've got gold, so they give gold. But if we think about, as Ben mentioned in our offering prayer, our time, our talent, our tithes, what is it that we can give? Everyone has something. And you might feel like you're only giving that tenth of an ephah of flour, or you caught some wild pigeon for your offering, because it's what you're good at, what you can do. But consider this, to someone else, that gift is gold. And as we look around, it's easy to think of others have better gifts to give. They're the gold givers. I'm one of the pigeon people. But as we look at each other, it is all of us bringing the best that we have. And when we bring the best that we have, and when we do all that we do and give all that we give in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we then truly are giving a gift of gold. Because it comes from the heart, it comes from joy, it comes from commitment. It comes not from complaining. So what is it that you'll want to give? Is it a measure of your time? Is it a talent that you have that you can share? Is it the time and patience to teach someone else a skill that you have that can be shared? Is it a gift of money? Is it a gift of assistance? Is it a tithe that you bring or a secret offering by which you help someone else out that you know is falling on hard times? 
Whatever you do, for the least of these, do it in the name of our Lord Jesus. And perhaps in this Advent season, when things get busy, our schedules get tight, might we also remember the commitment that the Magi had of going the distance, internationally traveling and returning. And if we can take that into consideration, we might not have to travel a great distance to give a gift to someone, but it might be going the distance referring to time. There's a friend of mine who I describe as the champion of otherwise forgotten causes. And he will go the distance with anyone in terms of time. They will not be abandoned or forgotten. And I respect him so much for it. It's one of his gifts, and I think it's, one, it's a gift of gold. Who is it that you want to go the distance of time with? That maybe you're actually just a little bit tired of them. And yet, who will you go the distance with? And will it be done from a place in your heart that is a gift of gold? For all that we give, for all that we bring to an altar, whether it be overlaid with gold like that of Solomon, whether it be a table where we take communion, or whether it be at a manger, all of it is given to Christ our Lord. We do not give our gifts to buy favor, but when we give them, we remember God's favor that has been shown to us. And so as we begin this Advent season, we begin by taking communion to remember, in fact, that God is with us. That is the meaning of the word Emmanuel. God is with us. God has drawn near. God does not stay far away, but Emmanuel, God with us. And God's favor is shown to us in the breaking of the bread and the giving of the cup. In this holy supper that we are about to partake, we do so in remembrance, communion, and hope.